cricket journalist and writer Peter Lawler. Peter talks about the teams touring Australia viewing the Aussie media as hostile, the drop in shield cricket standards, the influence of BBL, IPL and more importantly the AFL, Michael Clark's leadership and the effect of bringing Brad Haddon into the test team and the overall merits of the recently announced Ashes squad. Welcome to the show Peter. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's absolutely my pleasure. Let's talk about Aussie media and how the visiting uh, teams to touring Australia, how they interacted and how they felt about Aussie media. One of the things that I read was before India came to um, Australia in 2011 and 12, Akash Chopra had written an article on Yahoo Cricket, I suppose, and uh, about the things that he did when he toured Australia in, with the Indian team in 2003, 2004. And he talked about all the adjustments to batting techniques and stuff that he made. But more importantly, he also mentioned the several advice that he got from people about handling the Aussie media, because the Aussie media could be a hostile one. What do you think he really means by that? Yeah, I suppose the Australian media can be hostile. And I think it probably does unnerve uh, touring sites, but I suppose what they don't see and, and what, what they were seeing through that period that Akash Chopra is talking about is uh, that the Australian media gives it to both sides. It's very blunt. It's probably very Australian, you could say. Uh, calls a spade a uh, spade. Uh, so if you're, if you're having a bad tour of Australia, the Australian media will climb into you and let you know just how bad your tour is. Uh, equally, I might add that the Australian team have been copying, copying it uh, terribly in recent times, particularly during that last tour of India. Uh, so I'm not sure. I, I think that touring teams often feel like it's a personal thing that the Australian cricket media uh, paints its face and barracks supports the Australian side. I'm not sure that that's true, but it certainly uh, will point out your failings if they are there. Hmm. I mean, especially during the uh, Ricky Ponting and Steve Waugh era, when everything that Australian cricket team touched turned to gold, that the visiting team not only had to face up to that once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation type of team, but also the Aussie media, which probably did some of the bidding for uh, the Aussie team themselves in terms of the mental disintegration that Steve Waugh made so famous. Yeah, well, I'm not sure about they did the bidding for them. But they, <laughs> certainly hold, they certainly don't hold back. And, and a lack of tact appears to be a sort of a national trait of Australians, <laughs> and uh, the, the media's not spared that. Uh, I know that Indians are often shocked when they get here and they, they read the host country's media reporting on a visiting side in the way that they do. But as I said before, it goes both ways. Um, perhaps Australians will develop manners a little later on in their nationhood. Only a couple of hundred years old. You know, we're just getting the hang of this. <laughs> you mentioned about the Aussie team copying similar kind of uh, treatment. How, how has the uh, Australian players uh, taken to it? 
Look, different players respond differently, and it's, it's often the way they respond, the tone set by the captains, the coach, and those sorts of people. Under Ricky Ponting and under Michael Clark, the public position is that if we're not playing well, we expect to read that we're not playing well, and if we're not making runs, we expect to read that we're not making runs, and that we should make runs. They do seem to take it on the chin. They were getting a little bit rattled in India last time because I don't, I don't think they'd ever endured a tour like that before. Um, India destroyed Australia on the field and Australia set about destroying itself off the field with homework gate and that sort of business. And then there were people like me on the sideline who, in the end, you could only lampoon them for the way they were behaving, particularly with that off-field stuff. I mean, that was a joke. Um, and if you didn't point out it was a joke, you weren't doing your job, were you? They're going all right. Uh, they front up. I'll give the Australians one thing. They front up and they speak to the media uh, constantly. The Indian side treats the media with disdain. Um, that's their choice. That's a tone set by the BCCI. But there's almost a contempt for the media. Um, they don't believe that it, there's much need to get out and talk to journalists or to fulfil media commitments on tour. The Australians, understand, well, the Australians know there's a need for that because they need to fight with the local football codes and other sports for space in the newspaper and on television and just to get attention and get people to the game. In India, it seems set and forget. It doesn't matter what you do. People are going to show up and the game's extraordinarily wealthy. Um, it's interesting, you know, uh, when Sachin Tendulkar was here last time, mm-hmm. he didn't do one media opportunity. You know, a lot of uh, the Australian media were very upset by that because... Uh, they thought it was rude. They thought that you know, if, you, if you're here and you're playing cricket, you'd at least front up once or twice and uh, speak to journalists. But he didn't do that. Um, I think it was under orders from the BCCI and a lot of other senior players did the same. But, you know, that's media. It's not cricket, is it? It's the sort of circus around the game. That's something that uh, I want to talk to you about as well, you know, because in, in Australia, of course, cricket is competing with uh, Aussie rules and rugby codes and everything for the eyeballs and the inches of space on the newspaper. Whereas in India, you know, as much as a cricketer farts, it makes, you know, it's, uh, it's a headline news talked about by every single news channel and analyzed to death and everything. So going back to my earlier question where the Aussie media, some people could see them as a hostile, like, is it possible that perhaps the Aussie cricket media is a much smaller in size so it's easy to see them as, you know, people ganging up on the visiting team? Possible, I guess, yeah. I mean, the, the size of the Indian meter is, is extraordinary, isn't it? I, I remember my first visits to India as a young bloke, you had one television station and then I come back and you had over 100. Mm. Um, explosion It's fantastic. I mean, you have so many voices. Uh, but what I find is there's a, with so many voices, there's a lot of shouting to get that attention. Is true. That is true. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure the Australian media shouts that much. Um, and, you know, when you talk about it, um, some of those uh, television stations get pretty breathless about their reporting of cricket, don't they? And uh, <laughs> the scandals and that sort of thing, and who's dating who. That's, you know, we, when, you, when you mentioned about how Indian players treat the media with disdain, and possibly it's not because how any foreign media are treated them, it's possibly because how the Indian media treats their own cricketers and the cricket establishment. And I mm. think there is a, you know, I think neither side has any respect for the other. You know, the media does not respect the privacy and does not let them be. And so players mm. are probably don't want to give them their time. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Uh, that could be the truth. I'm not there often enough to say it, but there's no need, you know. 
there's no need for the players to be too accessible to the media, is there? I suppose they do get frustrated when I sit in press conferences there. You can hear the same question asked eight times in a row uh, sometimes but because te- television journalists always like to repeat themselves. Uh, I suppose it does get a bit maddening. Who knows? It goes round and round. Um, the relationship between players players and the media will always be a strange one. Hmm. It's, uh, you're very blessed in India to have such a love of the game. It makes it so much easier. It makes uh, the development of the game so much easier and the promotion of the game so much easier. Australia, it doesn't struggle, but, I mean, it is in competition with other sports. But then you look at other countries, don't you, and you look at New Zealand. I mean, the game, you know, is dying in the shadows. Uh, West Indies, it battles for attention. In England, it battles for attention too. Um, but in India, you're blessed. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about the Australian cricket team. And uh, we'll pick up with uh, the uh, Australian, Australian tour to India. And you were there to cover the Test Series in India. I was listening to Gideon Haig talking to Jared Kimber recently on one of the ESPN Cricket for Things. And he mentioned you talking about how when Brad Haddon landed in India, the younger members of the Aussie squad gravitated towards him. What, what sort of effect does Brad Haddon have on the other members of the team? I want to hear from you. Look, that was a team of novices. There was a team of newbies. There was a team of uh, neophytes who, who had gone to India, you know, without a map, without very much, uh, without any idea of how to play in India, or much idea, which was obvious from the score. Mm-hmm. And how an Australian side conducts itself in India. Because uh, something remarkable happened last summer. Michael Hussey and Ricky Ponting left the Australian dressing room, and when they left it, they took an enormous amount of knowledge and culture with them. Uh, There were very few people in the dressing room in India who understood how an Australian dressing room worked or how Australian cricket worked. Michael Clark's the only guy left from that era, really, Mm -hmm. uh, and he's always been of another generation. The only other guy was Shane Watson, and the dysfunction between Michael and Shane is obvious, and that's why Shane stood down now. They don't get along. They, didn't, they couldn't sort of drag them to come together for the team. When uh, Haddon showed up, Haddon's got that been there, done it sort of uh, persona. He's the old man. You know, if, if you want to know something, you go to Brad Haddon and he'll tell you, because uh, Brad Haddon's very straight. You reckon the Australian media talks straight. Brad Haddon talks a hell of a lot straighter. I heard him say to someone else on the team, shut up, mate, you'll never play cricket again, let's, do, let's move on. I mean, he, he tells it as it is. The younger players went to him, I think, just, I don't know, just to touch a little bit of the past, just to work out how you do this. That team was rudderless over there, had a new coach, a new captain, new team manager, new batting order. They didn't really know what they were doing. But in the, in the last test match in... Uh Russia Kotla in Delhi, you know, it looked like, you know, for the first three tests, it was a, you know, except for the first innings in Chennai, they looked pretty listless, were basically down for the count against India. But then in Delhi, under Shane Watson's captaincy, you know, with all the drama that went on, he comes back and becomes the captain because of Clark's injury. And suddenly you see that Aussie fighting spirit which was very interesting to observe. Where was this famous Aussie fighting spirit all this time? Don't underestimate how good India were. I mean, you were seeing sniffs of that Aussie fighting 
spirit on day one and two of the first test. Mm-hmm. And then uh, MS Dhoni extinguished it with one of the you know, more extraordinary innings. You know, one of the, I'd, I'd say, probably the best innings that I've ever seen of him. And he wiped them off the table. Uh, the Indians wouldn't let Australia get up and fight back. Every time they did, they slapped them back down, you know. You had uh, Shikha Dewan come in and play that extraordinary innings. Australia just kept being put back in the box. And maybe not just by India, too. I mean, there were a lot of failings on that tour. The, the decision to drop Nathan Lyon after the first test was just extraordinary. It was so wrong-headed. It's breathtaking that selectors could have been that wrong. But they were. Fighting spirit in the last test. There was nothing to lose in that last test, was there? Captain had gone home. That homework gate nonsense was been and, been and gone. They were 3-0 down. They had a go, but they still didn't win. So Haddon, who wasn't even the first choice wicketkeeper for that tour, comes back in. Shane Watson becomes the captain due to the circumstances, etc. Uh, now Haddon is the vice-captain for the Ashes tour. I want to understand, what does it tell about Clark's leadership that they had to have someone that they weren't going to consider? You know, they were going to go with Matthew Wade and then perhaps Tim Payne was next in the rank. That they had to bring in Haddon. Well, I think all leaders need to share the the leadership duties to some degree, don't they? I think the primary thing that it tells you is that uh, he doesn't have a Ricky Ponting or a Michael Hussey in the dressing room to help out anymore. You put Ricky Ponting in the corner of a dressing room, it it was like a a holy figure. I mean, he he radiated cricket culture. Uh, He he radiated that um, attendance to training and to detail and just love of the game. I mean, his desire for cricket was he had insatiable thirst for the game. Um, and young players fed off that and wanted to, wanted to impress Ponting and wanted to be like Ponting and, you know, uh, just wanted to be in Ponting's presence. When he left, there was an enormous gap. Very difficult for a captain to do everything by himself. I, I, I recall growing up watching Alan Border as the lone old hand in a young test team in the late 80s. And um, it wore down on him. Hmm. He was, a, you know, <laughs> Captain Cranky, they used to call him. But that's a very difficult task for anybody. Uh, and particularly when Clark's scoring so many runs. Um, he's doing his best on the field. Uh, I think he's, he's quite a good captain on the field. Uh, but somebody said to me recently, and it was quite, quite wise words, that the easiest thing about captaincy is uh, getting your game tactics right. The hardest part is getting your team right, is keeping your team together. Uh, but we'll see. I think maybe with Brad Haddon there, they'll work... They'll, Brad Haddon was Michael's first captain at state level when he started playing for New South Wales. Perhaps they'll form that sort of unit where, uh, you know, Brad's pretty good at stabbing people in the front and might do a little bit of uh, straight talking for his captain and uh, take a little bit of the load off him. Yeah, Michael said when Brad arrived in India that he felt some relief. He felt that he didn't have to do so much by himself. Mm. So that's a sign of a good deputy, isn't it? And I suppose that's uh, an indication of what he felt uh, Shane Watson wasn't doing. There's a question from a listener, Shrikant. Years of following cricket, we always heard about the Australian cricket system. He was given a lot of the credit for the development and eventually, you know, the greatness of some of the players that played in the 1990s and the 2000s. Now, how could such a fantastic system decay so quickly as it seems to have done? Yeah, yeah, and it's a very good question, Shrikant. And if, you know, anybody knows the answer, they could uh, 
make a lot of money from cricket Australia. <laughs> Everybody's scratching their heads. Uh, you know, obviously there has been the Argus report, which has had its recommendations, and I'm not so convinced that the recommendations it's made have have all been for the better. It seems to have created a, a almost a welfare state around the players. Uh, look, Greg Chappell began to say over 15 years ago that first-class cricket in Australia was in trouble, hmm. that it that people were fooling themselves if they thought that it was still of the high standard that it had always been at. Uh, and maybe he's right. Shield cricket is struggling. It's struggling because Cricket Australia have suspended for two months every year to run the Big Bash League, uh, which is a ridiculous decision. It's struggling because Australian rules football has got considerably larger and considerably stronger and considerably more attractive to young athletes in the past two decades. It's a very wealthy game. It's uh, expanded into every state and it plucks off the best sportsmen as teenagers and takes them, takes them away from cricket, takes them away from a lot of sports. In fact, even the Olympic movement in Australia complains that Australian rules football is taking all the, all the good athletes, all the good male athletes into its system. It, uh, I was sitting there with my son the other day who's reasonable at both sports and we were talking about, you know, what's a better career? And uh, it came up that, you know, there's... There's 12 places in an Australian test team. Mm -hmm. That's the peak level. If you want to play Australian football, there's a lot of teams. 18 teams times... Sorry, there's not 18 teams. Uh, However many teams there are, times 22 players. There's so much more opportunity. True. You just mentioned about how... Uh, especially this, uh, the past season, uh, past summer in Australia, you had the Big Bash League bang in the middle of the cricket season where the test series was on, um, your shield season had to be basically put on hold for the Big Bash to happen. Ironic thing is, you know, anywhere you go around the world, you hear about cricket and India and the, all the power that BCCI has. And England and Australia are considered to be the traditional cricketing nations and the gatekeepers of traditional cricket. But both of them have this T20 format, T20 tournaments going right in the middle of the domestic season. Is that, has there been like plenty of outrage about uh, doing this in the middle of the season, so much so that perhaps uh, Cricket Australia will think twice about it next year? There's been a lot of outrage. Well, I've been banging that drum all summer, uh, but... Uh and most of the media have, Cricket Australia dismiss we critics of their Big Bash format as, you know, um, stale, male and pale, um, not the new fans that they want, and they suggest that we're out of touch with cricket. Hmm. Um, They won't listen, no. The the timing will be a little bit different, but uh, as the CEO of Australian Cricket said to me during the summer, well, you suggest a better, better scheduling... Uh, and then you have a right to criticise because that's the best scheduling that we can come up with and that's what we're sticking with. They're wedded to this big bash league. They believe it in... And there is some some suggestion that they're right, that it it introduces new fans to the game and the game's desperately in need of new fans uh, because the fan base in Australia particularly was getting older. Uh, Young people weren't engaging with the game in the same way. Uh, India is blessed with the IPL because the uh, population loves it. It seems to be that perfect blend, doesn't it, of uh, entertainment and cricket. Also, uh, very wise of the BCCI not to interrupt its season to play the IPL. I suppose it doesn't need to interrupt its season either because uh, with that sort of money it can do what it wants. Can't it? It can hold, can hold it whatever, 11 months of a year and it wouldn't get too much complaint from the players, I don't think. It's a 
certainly from the other boards it would. Um, <laughs> I want to get into talking about the uh, Ashes squad that was announced, but firstly, I want to talk about uh, Mark Taylor during that squad announcement, uh, Ashes squad announcement. He mentioned that Australian cricketers, especially the test players and particularly the batsmen, they are being sapped by the uh, riches of the T20 tournaments around the world, including Big Bash and IPL. And can you directly relate? The decline in batsmanship or the uh, promising batsmen coming through in Australia to these T20 tournaments. <sighs> Look, I don't know that you can. You, I don't know that you can directly relate it. I don't know that you could ever prove it. It's it's a theory, but there seems no doubt in my mind that what Mark Taylor was saying was correct. If, if a young player can pick up a million dollars, half a million dollars, two hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is, uh, from the IPL before really proving themselves, that younger player has got to be a lot more comfortable with their position in cricket than a player was two decades ago. Two decades ago, in Australian cricket at least, if you made it to test level, well and good, but you had to stay there because if you didn't stay there, you fell all the way down to shield cricket. So you went from the top of, top of the table earning good money in front of big crowds and travelling the world back to state level where you're playing in front of 15 blokes and a dog Mm-hmm. You get vet, you're, you're having to work to earn a living. Like you have to have a day job. Um, that just that sheer economic circumstance, that uh, circumstance of reward for effort, two decades ago, <laughs> has evaporated. Uh, Glenn Maxwell has a million dollars before he plays, plays his first test match. Uh, guys who play their first test matches. Uh, have a lot know that if this all disappears, they can still make a hell of a lot of money and have a good time internationally playing 2020 cricket. So it's made cricketers a little bit more less hungry for for test level cricket. Once again, I go back to this. I mean, if you look at the uh, you know India running the richest T20 tournament, and you look in their stable of batsmen, and they have had really good young talent come through, even with IPL there. Yeah. But still, in terms of pure cricketing quality, you know, you see a Virat Kohli, you see a Chaitanya Pujara, Pujara, and even Shikhar Dhawan, and you have, uh, you know, Rohit Sharma, who could be a really good batsman, the longer format, and so on and so forth. Whereas we haven't seen such good quality of batsmen coming through the Aussie system. So I'm kind of hesitant to say that it's because of the T20s um, that... Uh, Australia hasn't been producing the uh, great batsmen, like you know, last probably the last great middle order batsman to come from Australia is Michael Clark. Yeah, look, it's, it's a very good point, the one that you make. Uh, if IPL is 2020 is ruining Australian Australia's batting stocks, why isn't it? Why isn't the same happening elsewhere? And it's not, or it doesn't appear to be just yet. That's why I suggest that the first-class system over here is, is maybe not as good as it could be. Perhaps it's cyclical too. Perhaps uh, in the next 10 years, the, the next Ricky Ponting, Michael Hussey, Alan Border, Mark Taylor, Michael Clark will, will appear again. Um, but, gee, I tell you what, they're a long way over the horizon at the moment. They're not on, they're not on the radar Perhaps this is the situation. Perhaps uh, Australia will start to start to play cricket with uh, guys who come into the national team with, at best, a first-class average of 40. Uh, hope not. It'd be bad for the game, won't it? 
India's, India's going to get very bored beating us 4-0. <laughs> Please, I haven't forgot. I was in Australia for the first two test matches in Melbourne and Sydney. I was, so, I wouldn't <laughs> jump the gun just yet. Um, Four so, each, then, is it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, a couple of listeners, you know, you, you, uh, Aju, John, and Chandan, they, they want to know from you. You know, you just mentioned about quality of the Shield cricket going down. Why is that? They both want to know from you. And without an explanation that doesn't point fingers at BBL or IPL or any other T20 tournament. Sure, sure. Well, can I point a finger at the AFL? As I said, you know, 19 teams with 40 players on their lists, sucking up the best athletes at the ages of, you know, 14, 15, 16. Mm. That is, that's had a significant impact on the game. Uh, look, the Argus report has pointed to things like the pitches, the coaches, the structures. There's a lot of little things going on there. Uh, it, it's so hard to know. I, I don't think there's one. Anyone who's telling you that there's a simple answer to this problem is wrong. It's a complex problem with uh, a lot of factors at play. The pitches this year were, were difficult early in the season. They weren't that difficult late in the season. But the only people that made runs in state cl- cricket were Brad Haddon, Chris Rogers and Ricky Ponting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a disaster. And if you look around, I mean, God, who else is still making runs? Simon Caddick, he didn't play state cricket this year, but I see he's on 90-odd not out overnight in England. Yeah, I saw your tweet about him crossing 12,000 <laughs> first-class runs, yeah. It's an obsession. Simon <laughs> Caddick's fan. Uh, I don't have the answers to that. I don't know why the first-class system isn't producing the players it once did, except I believe the AFL is one of the really big reasons. I think it's a much bigger reason than the the big bash league or the IPL or any of those sorts of things. Uh, But I do believe that that this IPL mentality is entering cricket. India India's in, it has a, a, a much bigger talent pool to draw on True. than Australia and than most other nations. So you know, you've probably got 50 times the number of people that we have uh, and, and by sheer numbers should produce that many better cricketers. So you still have the batsmen coming through. I wonder if there might not be more batsmen coming through if some weren't distracted by the IPL. But mm-hmm. at this stage, it doesn't seem to have done too much damage to Indian cricket. And I'll tell you one thing that I have noticed that the Indian cricket team is so much better at fielding now, the Indian test team I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my last two tours of India, I've sat in the stands and thought, I'm, the Indian cricket team is now a better fielding side than the Australian side, and I don't think I would have ever have said that in the last two decades. And I, that's a direct uh, outcome of the IPL, I think. Hmm, that's, that's an interesting point, certainly. All right, let's let's talk about the Ashes squad. What are your initial impressions of the squad announced? Oh, look, it's the best they could do. You know, I can't uh, have a go at the selectors about this squad. I quite like the makeup of it. It's a little bit more traditional than the squad that that they took to India. I think they were looking a little bit at horses for courses to India, and they thought that maybe. You know, these X-factor players, they call them, a terrible term, but <laughs> that maybe a uh, Maxwell or a Steve Smith would do well for them there. And in, and in the case of Steve Smith, he did do well for them. They've gone for a more traditional setup. They'll, they'll look to play six batsmen. 
wicketkeeper and four bowlers, which was something that they weren't looking to do in India. Funny, you know, the batting lineup is still the problem. Yeah, there are the top order is a disaster. I think Michael Clarke has more run, more career runs than the entire top order. He's the only person in the top order who has an average above forty. It's not unthinkable that Cowan, Warner, Hughes and Watson might not make it through the five Ashes tests on form alone. Hmm. That's four of your top order. Four of your top order in that fragile state. And then you assume you're bringing in an Usman Khawaja and a Chris Rogers who are coming into the side. It's a great worry. I can't see them not being thrashed, to be honest with you. You can't win an Ashes series with a batting lineup like that. Bowlers are fine. No I mean, drummer at all. Bowlers. Ed Cowan seems to be in some form right now. What was the logic behind still sticking with Hughes? And where does, like, does, is Shane Watson an automatic pick in the top six? The, the logic with Hughes was that he made a lot of runs in Australia over the summer and needed to be rewarded for that. He got his game into better shape. And he did well when given the chance in Australia, did well enough. Uh, he struggled in India and would have been dropped for the third test, but for that homework nonsense. Mm-hmm. And given that opportunity, uh, all kudos to him. I, I think he, put, he batted quite well in the third test and then fell away again. You can't ignore the fact that Hughes has what 20... Uh, Hughes' first-class career is excellent. True. And Hughes works very hard at test cricket. And we'll see how he goes in England. There's a lot of love for Phil Hughes in Australian cricket because they respect they respect his mental strength, they respect his application, and they respect the fact that he makes runs. He looks ugly, but he makes runs. Uh, his Test career hasn't been smooth sailing by any means, but it hasn't always been his fault. Of course. What's this space on Phil Hughes? He's only very young. Yeah. So, and he's played 24 tests. So this, this will be a big test for him in England, naturally. And uh, how about Watson? Now that with Chris Rogers coming in, I, mm. in my opinion, I would think Rogers would be the one-down batsman with Warner and Cowan averaging 45 as a partnership, uh, probably still open at uh, Trenbridge. Uh, where does Watson figure in all that, especially with, you know, six batsmen, one keeper, four bowlers? I agree with what you said before. I I don't think that he's an automatic pick uh, among the top six batsmen. Nobody who uh, I think he's average as vice-captain is at about 24, Mm -hmm. uh, which just isn't good enough by any standards at all. Uh, He's struggled in the last two years. What will save him in England is that he's bowling. If he's not bowling, he might not be in the side Hmm. for very long at all. But... It sh- <laughs> isn't this, isn't this, the, the, uh, doesn't this tell you everything about Australian cricket? Uh, Shane Watson, who's been stood down one test, captains the next test, stands down as vice-captain. He is perhaps the most critical player in that team because uh, he, he allows you to play six batsmen, inverted commas, mm-hmm. if he bowls. That's so valuable. If he's not there as that extra bowler... It really upsets the team that you choose. He gives them an extraordinary balance, and he has since he came in in the Ashes series over there when Hughes was dropped last time. I mean, the more and more you look at it, it's as if Australia have become the England of 90s and England have become the Australia of 90s. And I, thought Australia, I thought only the Australian media were offensive. 
<laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I said to Simon Barnes on the last uh, last tour here. I think we were having lunch in Adelaide. I said neither of us are equipped for this, Simon. I should be writing your stories and you should be writing mine. You can't deal with a winning team and I can't deal with a losing team. I don't have the adjectives. But, um, yeah, yep. The shoe is definitely on the other foot. This is a very ordinary Australian team. This was the Australian team that I grew up watching, by the way. Mm. Uh, the teams of the, the you know, Kim Hughes, uh, Graham Yallop, and then later Alan Border. You know, it was the team that Alan Border rescued, but... Uh, when I grew up, Australian cricket was in this disastrous state, but it had uh, there were easier scapegoats to find in Kerry Packer and the Rebel Tours. Uh, scapegoats here are a little bit uh, less... They have less shape. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, in an informal uh, meet somewhere, Graham Swan predicted 4-0 for England. What, what do you think? What do you think is going to be the score line? Uh, I'm terrible at predictions, but, uh, yeah, why not? They could steal a test. Yeah, because the bowling, you know, you still... I mean, Harris is injured, but he could still get back in time. But you still have Siddle, you have Pattinson, you have Stark when he gets back healthy, and uh, Jackson Bird and Faulkner if required, and Nathan Lyon. So you still have very good bowling attack that could, you know, win you a test or two. That's right. If the stars lined up. If Michael Clark knocked up another one of those triple hundreds mm. and uh, those bowlers got the best use of a wicket, they could win test matches. But look, look, in 89, Australia went over there and everybody expected them to get hammered. And people stood up and made names for themselves. And there were people like Steve Warer, who had played 20 rather unsuccessful tests at that point, and Mark Taylor, who'd only played two tests. They were among the two top run scorers. Mm-hmm. But I think, from memory, Alan Border and Dean Jones tipped in too. Yep. So, look, Cowan, Warner, Hughes, Watson, Kawaja, Rogers, the opportunity's there for these guys. I'd say that most of, that, that most of them could make it at test level. And this is their time to prove it. If they, and if they do prove that they, they can make it at test level, Australia can steal a couple of tests here. But going on uh, past performances, uh, they're in trouble. Hmm. All right. I'll let you go on one final question, and this comes from Rahul. And he knows you're a connoisseur of beer and cricket. <laughs> so which beer complements a test match the best? <laughs> I wrote a story about India Pale Ale yesterday. Why can't you get India Pale Ale in India? You know? <laughs> oh, something bitter. Yes. An English bitter, I suggest, for this, uh, for the test, for the ashes. Yeah. I had, uh, I had a couple of bottles of um, Kingfisher Strong mm. when, I was up in, uh, when I was up in the Himalayas during the last tour. That's... Um, a shortcut to a meditative state, that beer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I'm, myself, I'm a lager guy, so... Lager guy? Yeah. Oh, yes. All right. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show, Peter. It was uh, wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me on. Sorry for rambling like that. No, but, you uh, If you want the good answers, you're in Gideon. He's <laughs> a smart one. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Oh, he's that one down the ground. This could be six as well. It's a big hit. Straight down the ground, almost into the dressing room. And that tells the story. What?
Couch Talk.